Welcome to Fast Asleep. Finally, you say, part three, yes. And yes, you're right. The conclusion of Daphne du Maurier's Don't Look Now is here for you. These are longer episodes, and I have heard from some of you that there is frustration about falling asleep before the episode is completed. But isn't that the point? It's okay. We are still going to be there for you in the morning. So, Mr. Morier, she really does make it easy to engage our listeners, to help you forget everything else and then just drift off to sleep. So are you ready to tuck in? Dame Daphne du Maurier, Lady Browning, she never used her title, gives us, tuck in, the conclusion of, and enjoy. Don't look now. What have you lost? A suitcase stolen, John lied rapidly. I had some important papers in it. How could he say he'd lost his wife? He couldn't even begin. The man nodded in sympathy. As I said, these eye ties are all alike. Old Musso knew how to deal with them. Too many communists around these days. The trouble is, they're not going to bother with our troubles much, not with this murderer at large. They're all out looking for him. Murderer? What, what murderer? asked John. Oh, don't tell me you've not heard about it. The man stared at him in surprise. Venice has talked of nothing else. It's been in all the papers, on the radio, or oh, even in the English papers. A grisly business. One woman found with her throat slit last week. A tourist, too, and some old chap discovered with the same sort of knife wound this morning. They seem to think it must be a maniac because there doesn't seem to be any motive. Nasty thing to happen in Venice in the tourist season. Oh, well, my wife and I never bother with the newspapers when we're on holiday, said John, and we're neither of us much given to gossip in the hotel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's very wise of you laughed the man. It might have spoilt your holiday, especially if your wife is nervous. Oh, well, we're off tomorrow anyway. Can't say we mind, do we, dear? He turned to his wife. Venice, Venice has gone downhill since we were here last, and now this loss of the handbag, it really is the limit. The door of the inner room opened, and a senior police officer asked John's companion and his wife to pass through. I bet we don't get any satisfaction, murmured the tourist, winking at John, and he and his wife went into the inner room. The door closed behind them. John stubbed out his cigarette and lighted another. A strange feeling of unreality possessed him. He asked himself, what he was doing here. Uh, what, what was the use of it? Laura was no longer in Venice, but it disappeared, perhaps forever. With those diabolical sisters? She would never be traced. And just as the two of them had made up a fantastic story about the twins, 
when they first spotted them in Torcello, so with nightmare logic, the fiction would have basis in fact. The women were in reality disguised crooks, men with criminal intent who lured unsuspecting persons to some appalling fate. They might even be the murderers for whom the police sought. Who would ever suspect two elderly women of respectable appearance living quietly in some second-rate pension or hotel? He stubbed out his cigarette, unfinished. This, he thought, is really the start of paranoia. This is the way people go off their heads. He glanced at his watch. It was half past six. Ah, better pack this in. This futile quest here in police headquarters. And keep to the single link of sanity remaining. Return to the hotel, put a call through to the prep school in England and ask about the latest news of Johnny. He had not thought about poor Johnny since sighting Laura on the Vaporetto. Oh, too late, though. The inner door opened. The couple were ushered out. Usual claptrap, said the husband, sotto voice, to John. Oh, they'll do what they can. Not much hope. So many foreigners in Venice. All of them thieves. The locals, all above reproach. Wouldn't pay him to steal from customers. Ugh. I wish you better luck. He nodded. His wife smiled and bowed, and they had gone. John followed the police officer into the inner room. Formalities began. Name, address, passport, length of stay in Venice, etc., etc. Then the questions. And John, the sweat beginning to appear on his forehead, launched into his interminable story. The first encounter with the sisters, the meeting at the restaurant, Laura's state of suggestibility because of the death of their child, the telegram about Johnny, the decision to take the chartered flight, her departure, and her sudden inexplicable return. When he had finished, he felt as exhausted as if he had driven 300 miles non-stop after a severe bout of flu. His interrogator spoke excellent English with a, an Italian accent. You say, he began, that your wife was suffering the after effects of shock. This has been noticeable during your stay here in Venice? Oh, yes, John replied. She'd really been quite ill. The holiday didn't seem to be doing her much good. It was only when she met these two women at Torcello yesterday that her mood changed. The strain uh, seemed to have gone. She was ready, I suppose, to snatch at every straw and this belief that our little girl was watching over her, well, it, it had somehow restored her to what appeared normality. 
Well, it would be natural, said the police officer, in the circumstances, but no doubt the telegram last night, well, that was a further shock to you both. Indeed, yes, that was the reason we decided to return home. No argument between you? No difference of opinion? None. We were in complete agreement. My one regret was that I could not go with my wife on this charter flight. The police officer nodded. Well, it could be well that your wife uh, had a, a sudden attack of amnesia and meeting the two ladies served as a link. She clung to them for support. You have described them with great accuracy, and I I think they should not be too difficult to trace. Meanwhile, I suggest you should return to your hotel, and we will get in touch with you as soon as we have news. Hmm? At least, John thought, they believed his story. They did not consider him a crank who had made the whole thing up and was merely wasting their time. You appreciate, he said, I am extremely anxious. These women may have some criminal design upon my wife. One has heard of such things. The police officer smiled for the first time. Please, do not concern yourself, he said. I am sure there will be some satisfactory explanation. All very well, thought John, but in heaven's name, what? I'm sorry, he said, to have taken up so much of your time, especially as I gather the, the police have their hands full, hunting down a murderer who is still at large. He spoke deliberately. No harm in letting the fellow know that, for all any of them could tell, there might be some connection between Laura's disappearance and this other hideous affair. Ah, that, said the police officer, rising to his feet. We hope to have the murderer under lock and key very soon. His tone of confidence was reassuring. Murderers missing wives, lost handbags, were all under control. They shook hands, and John was ushered out of the door and so downstairs. Perhaps, he thought, as he walked slowly back to the hotel, the fellow was right. Laura had suffered a sudden attack of amnesia, and the sisters happened to be at the airport and had brought her back to Venice to their own hotel because uh, Laura couldn't remember where she and John had been staying. Perhaps they were even now trying to track down his hotel. Well, anyway, he could do nothing more. The police had everything in hand and, please God, would come up with a solution. All he wanted to do right now was collapse upon a bed with a stiff whiskey and then put through a call to Johnny's school. The page took him up in the lift 
to a modest room on the fourth floor at the rear of the hotel. Bare, impersonable, impersonal. The shutters closed with a smell of cooking wafting up from the courtyard down below. Ask them to send me up a, a double whiskey, will you? He said to the boy, and a ginger ale. And when he was alone, he plunged his face under the cold tap in the wash basin, relieved to find that the minute portion of visitor's soap afforded some measure of comfort. He flung off his shoes, hung his coat on the back of a chair, and threw himself down on the bed. Somebody's radio was blasting forth an old popular song, now several seasons out of date, that had been one of Laura's favorites a couple of years ago. I love you, baby. He reached for the telephone and asked the exchange to put through the call to England. Then he closed his eyes, and all the while the insistent voice persisted, I love you, baby. I can't get you out of my mind. Presently, there was a tap at the door. It was the waiter with his drink. Too little ice. Such meager comfort. But what desperate need. He gulped it down without the ginger ale. And in a few moments, the ever-nagging pain was eased, numbed bringing, if only momentarily, a sense of calm. The telephone rang, and now, he thought, bracing himself for ultimate disaster, the final shock. Johnny, probably dying, or already dead, in which case nothing remained. Let Venice be engulfed. The exchange told him that the connection had been made, and in a moment he heard the voice of Mrs. Hill at the other end of the line. They must have warned her that the call came from Venice, for she knew instantly who was speaking. Hello, she said. Oh, I am so glad you rang. All is well. Johnny has had his operation. The surgeon decided to do it at midday rather than wait. And it was completely successful. Johnny is going to be all right. So you don't have to worry anymore and we'll have a peaceful night. Oh, thank God, he answered. <laughs> I know, she said. We are all so relieved. Now, I'll get off the line and you can speak to your wife. John sat up on the bed, stunned. What the hell? What the hell did she mean? Then he heard Laura's voice, cool and clear. Darling, darling, are you there? He could not answer. He held, he felt the hand holding the receiver go clammy, cold with sweat. I'm here, he whispered. Oh, it's not a very good line, 
she said. Oh, but never mind. As Mrs. Hill told you, all is well. Such a nice surgeon and a very sweet sister on Johnny's floor. And I really am happy about the way it's all turned out. I came straight down here after landing at Gatwick. The flight okay, by the way, but <laughs> such a funny crowd. It'll make you hysterical when I tell you all about them. And I went to the hospital and Johnny was just coming round. Very dopey, of course, but so pleased to see me. And the hills are being wonderful. I've got their spare room, and it's only a short taxi drive into the town and the hospital. I shall go to bed as soon as we've had dinner, because I'm a bit fagged, what with the flight and, oh, and the anxiety. How is the drive to Milan, and where are you staying? John did not recognize the voice that answered as his own. It was the automatic response of some computer. I'm not in Milan, he said. I'm still in Venice. Oh, why you're still in Venice, what on earth for? Wouldn't the car start? I can't explain, he said. There was a stupid sort of mix up. He felt suddenly so exhausted that he nearly dropped the receiver and shame upon shame, he could feel tears pricking behind his eyes. Well, what sort of mix-up? The voice was suspicious, almost hostile. Oh, you weren't in a crash, were you? No, 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 nothing like that. A moment's silence, and then she said, Your voice sounds very slurred. Don't tell me you went off and got pissed. Oh, Christ, if she only knew. He was probably going to pass out at any moment, but not from the whiskey. I thought, he said slowly, I, I thought I saw you in a vaporetto with those two sisters. Oh, what was the point in going on? It was it was hopeless trying to explain. What? How could you have seen me with the sisters? She said. You knew I'd gone to the airport. Oh, really, darling, you are an idiot. You seem to have got those two poor old dears on the brain. Oh, I hope you didn't say anything to Mrs. Hill just now. No. Well, what are you going to do? You'll catch the train at Milan tomorrow, won't you? Yes, of course, he told her. I still don't understand what kept you in Venice, she said. It sounds a bit odd to me. However, thank God Johnny is going to be all right, and I'm here. Yes, he said. Yes. He could hear the distant boom-boom sound of a gong, from the headmaster's hall. Oh, you would better go, he said. My regards to the hills and my love to Johnny. Well, take care of yourself, darling, and for goodness sake, don't miss the train tomorrow and drive carefully. The telephone clicked and she had gone. He poured the remaining drop of whiskey into his empty glass and sousing it with ginger ale, drank it down at a gulp. He got up 
and crossing the room, threw open the shutters and leant out of the window. He felt lightheaded. His sense of relief, enormous, overwhelming, was somehow tempered with a curious feeling of unreality, almost as though the voice speaking from England had not been Laura's, but after all, a fake. And she was still in Venice, hidden in some furtive pension with those two sisters. The point was, he had seen all three of them on that vaporetto. It was not another woman in a red coat. The woman had been there. The women had been there with Laura. So what was the explanation? That he was going out of his head? Or was it something more sinister? The sisters, possessing psychic powers of formidable strength, had seen him as their two fairies had passed, and in some inexplicable fashion had made him believe Laura was with them. But why? And to what end? No, it didn't make sense. The only explanation was that he had been mistaken. The whole episode of hallucination, in which case he needed psychoanalysis just as Johnny had needed a surgeon. And what did he do now? Go downstairs and tell the management he had been at fault and had just spoken to his wife, who had arrived in England safe and sound from her charter flight. He put on his shoes and ran his fingers through his hair. He glanced at his watch. It was ten minutes to eight. Now, if he nipped into the bar and had a quick drink, it would be easier to face the manager and uh, apologies all round for putting everyone to enormous trouble. He made his way to the ground floor and went straight to the bar, feeling self-conscious, a marked man, half imagining everyone would look at him, thinking, oh, there's the fellow with the missing wife. Luckily, the bar was full and there wasn't a face he knew. Even the chap behind the bar was an underling who hadn't served him before. He downed his whiskey and glanced over his shoulder to the reception hall. The desk was momentarily empty. He could see the manager's back framed in the doorway of an inner room, talking to someone within. On impulse, coward-like, he crossed the hall and passed through the swing door to the street outside. I'll have some dinner, he decided, and then go back and face them. I'll feel more like it once I've had some food inside me. He went to the restaurant nearby where he and Laura had dined once or twice. Nothing mattered anymore because, well, she was safe. The nightmare lay behind him. He could enjoy his dinner, despite her absence, and think of her sitting down with the hills to a dull, quiet evening, early to bed, and on the following morning, going to the hospital to sit with Johnny. Johnny. 
Johnny was safe, too. No more worries. Only the awkward explanations and apologies to the manager at the hotel. There was a pleasant anonymity sitting down at a corner table alone in the little restaurant ordering Vitello alla Marsala and half a bottle of Merlot. He took his time enjoying his food but eating in a kind of haze. Still that sense of unreality with him, while the conversation of his nearest neighbors had the same soothing effect as background music. When they rose and left, he saw by the clock on the wall that it was nearly half past nine. No use delaying matters any further. He drank his coffee, lighted a cigarette, and paid his bill. After all, he thought, as he walked back to the hotel, the manager would be greatly relieved to know that all was well. When he pushed through the swing door, the first thing he noticed was a man in police uniform, standing, talking to the manager at the desk. The reception clerk was there, too. They turned as John approached, and the manager's face lighted up with relief. Oh, he exclaimed, I was certain the signore would not be far away. Things are moving, signore. The two ladies have been traced, and they are very kindly, they have very kindly agreed to accompany the police to the testura. If you will go there at once, this agente de polizia will escort you. John blushed. Oh, I have given everyone a lot of trouble he said. I meant to tell you before going out to dinner, but you were not at the desk. The fact is that, well, I have contacted my wife. <laughs> she did make the flight to London after all. I, I spoke to her on the telephone. It was all a great mistake. The manager looked bewildered. The signora is in London? he repeated. He broke off and exchanged a rapid conversation in Italian with the policeman. It seems that the ladies maintain they did not go out for the day except for a little shopping in the morning, he said, turning back to John. Then, um, uh, who was it the signore saw on the vaporetto? John shook his head. Ah, a very extraordinary mistake on my part, which I still don't understand, he said. Obviously, I did not see either my wife or the two ladies. I really am extremely sorry. More rapid conversation in Italian. John noticed the clerk watching him with a curious expression in his eyes. The manager was obviously apologizing on John's behalf to the policeman, who looked annoyed and gave tongue to this effect, his voice increasing in volume to the manager's concern. The whole business had undoubtedly given enormous trouble to a great many people, not the least the two unfortunate sisters. Look, said John, interrupting the flow, Will you tell the agente I will go with him 
to headquarters and apologize in person, both to the police officer and to the ladies. The manager looked relieved. If the signore would take the trouble, he said, naturally the ladies were much distressed when a policeman interrogated them at their hotel and they offered to accompany him to the Questura only because they were so distressed about the signora. Oh, John felt more and more uncomfortable. <gasps> Laura, mm -mm -mm, she must never learn any of this. Oh, she would be outraged. And then he wondered if there were some penalty for giving the police misleading information involving a third party. His error began, in retrospect, to take on criminal proportions. He crossed the Piazza San Marco, now thronged with after-dinner strollers and spectators at the cafes, all three orchestras going full blast in harmonious rivalry, while his companion kept a discreet two paces to his left and never uttered a word. They arrived at the police station and mounted the stairs to the same inner room where he had been before. He saw immediately that it was not the officer he knew, but another who sat behind the desk, a sallow-faced individual with a sour expression, while the two sisters, obviously upset, the active one in particular, were seated on chairs nearby, some underling in uniform standing behind them. John's escort went at once to the police officer, speaking in rapid Italian, while John himself, after a moment's hesitation, advanced towards the sisters. Oh, um, there has been a terrible mistake, he said, and I don't know how to apologize to you both. It's all my fault, mine entirely. The police are not to blame. The active sister made as though to rise, her mouth twitching nervously, but he restrained her. We don't understand, she said. We said good night to your wife last night at dinner, and we have not seen her since. The police, they came to our pension more than an hour ago and told us your wife was missing and you had filed a complaint against us. Now, my sister is not very strong. She was considerably disturbed. Oh. Oh, a mistake, a frightful mistake, he repeated. He turned towards the desk. The police officer was addressing him, his English very inferior to that of the previous interrogator. He had John's earlier statement on the desk in front of him, and he tapped it with a pencil. So, he queried, this document, all lies, you not speak the truth. I... I believed it to be true at the time, said John. I could have sworn in a court of law that I saw my wife and these two ladies on a vaporetto in the Grand Canal this afternoon. Now, well, now I realize I, I was mistaken. Well, we have not been near the Grand Canal all day, protested the sister, not even on foot. We made a few purchases in the Metzeria this morning and 
remained indoors all afternoon. My sister was a little unwell. I have told the police officer this a dozen times. And the people at the pension, they would corroborate our story. He refused to listen. And the signora, rapped the police officer angrily. What happened to the signora? The signora, my wife, she is safe. She is safe in England, explained John. I talked to her on the telephone just after seven. She did join the charter flight from the airport and is now staying with friends. Then who you see on the vaporetto in the red coat? asked the furious police officer. And if not these signorine here, then what signorine? My, my eyes deceived me, said John, aware that his English was likewise becoming strained. I think I see my wife and these ladies, but no, it was not so. My wife in aircraft, these ladies in pension, all the time. The police officer raised his eyes to heaven and thumped the table. So, all this work for nothing, he said. Hotels and pensions searched for the signorine and a missing Signora Iglese? Mm. <sighs> when here, we have plenty, plenty other things to do. You make a mistake. You have perhaps too much vino at Mezzogiorno, and you see hundred Signore in red coats, in hundred vaporetti. He stood up, rumpling the papers on his desk. And you, Signorine, he said, you wish to make complaint against this person? He was addressing the active sister. Oh, no, no, she said. No, indeed, I quite see. It was all a mistake. Our only wish is to return at once to our pension. The police officer grunted. Then he pointed at John. You, very lucky man, he said. These signorine could file complaint against you. Very serious matter. Oh, I'm sure, began John. I'll do anything in my power. Oh, please don't think of it, exclaimed the sister, actually horrified. We would not hear of such a thing. It was her turn to apologize to the police officer. I hope we need not take up any more of your valuable time, she said. He waved a hand of dismissal and spoke in Italian to the underling. This man, walk with you to the pension, he said. Buonasera, signorine. And ignoring John, he sat down again at his desk. I'll come with you, said John. I want to explain exactly what happened. They trooped down the stairs and out the building the blind sister leaning on her twin's arm, and once outside, she turned her sightless eyes to John. You saw us, she said, and your wife too, but not today. You saw us in the future. Her voice was softer than her sister's, slower. She seemed to have a slight impediment in her speech. I don't follow, replied John, bewildered. 
He turned to the active sister, and she shook her head at him, frowning, and put her finger on her lips. Come along, dear, she said to her twin. You know you're very tired, and I want to get you home. And then sotto voce to John. She's psychic. Your wife told you, I believe. But I don't want her to go into trances here in the street. Oh, God forbid, thought John. And the little procession began to move slowly along the street, away from police headquarters, a canal to the left of them. Progress was slow because of the blind sister, and there were two bridges. John was completely lost after the first turning, but it couldn't have mattered less. Their police escort was with them, and anyway, the sisters knew where they were going. I must explain, said John softly. My wife would never forgive me if I didn't. And as they walked, he went over the whole inexplicable story once again, beginning with the telegram received the night before and the conversation with Mrs. Hill, the decision to return to England the following day, Laura by air and John himself by car and train. It no longer sounded as dramatic as it had done when he made his statement to the police officer, when possibly because of his conviction of something uncanny, the description of the two vaporettos passing one another in the middle of the Grand Canal had held a sinister quality, suggesting abduction on the part of the sisters, the pair of them holding a bewildered Laura captive. Now that neither of the women had any further menace for him. He spoke more naturally, yet with great sincerity, feeling for the first time that they were somehow both in sympathy with him and would understand. You see, he explained, in a final endeavor to make amends for having gone to the police in the first place, I truly believed I had seen you with Laura, and I thought, he hesitated, because this really had been the police officer's suggestion and not his, I thought that perhaps Laura had some sudden loss of memory, had met you at the airport, and you had brought her back to Venice to wherever you were staying. They had crossed a large square and were approaching a house at one end of it with a sign Perisione above the door. Their escort paused at the entrance. Is this it? asked John. Yes, said the sister. I know it is nothing much from the outside, but it is clean and comfortable, and it was recommended by friends. She turned to the escort. Grazie, she said to him. Grazie tanto. The man nodded briefly, wished them buona notte, and disappeared across the campo. Will you come in? asked the sister. I am sure we can find you some coffee, or perhaps you prefer tea? No, really, John thanked her. I must get back to the hotel. I'm making an early start in the morning. I just want to make quite sure you do understand what happened and that 
you forgive me? There is nothing to forgive, she replied. It is one of the many examples of second sight that my sister and I have experienced time and time again. I should very much like to record it for our files, if you will permit it. Well, as to that, I mean, of course, he told her, but I myself, I find it hard to understand. It has never happened to me before. Not consciously, perhaps, she said, but so many things happen to us of which we are not aware. My sister felt you had psychic understanding. She told your wife. She also told your wife last night in the restaurant that you were to experience trouble, danger, that you should leave Venice. Well, don't you believe me now that the telegram was proof of this? Your son was ill, possibly dangerously ill, and so it was necessary for you to return home immediately. Heaven be praised. Your wife flew home to be by his side. Yes, indeed, said John. But why should I see her on the Vaporetto with you and your sister when well, she was actually on her way to England? Thought transference. Perhaps, she said. Your wife may have been thinking about us. We gave her our address, should you wish to get in touch with us. We shall be here another ten days, and she knows that we would pass on any message that my sister might have from your little one in the spirit world. Yes, said John awkwardly. Yes, I see, and it's very good of you. He had a sudden, rather unkind picture of the two sisters putting on headphones in their bedroom, listening for a coded message from poor Christine. Uh, yeah, and look, this is our address in London, he said. I know, Laura will be pleased to hear from you. He scribbled their address on a sheet torn from his pocket diary, even as a bonus thrown in the telephone number and handed it to her. He could imagine the outcome, Laura springing it on him one evening, that the old dears were passing through London on their way to Scotland, and the least they could do was to offer them hospitality, even the spare room for the night. And then a seance in the living room, tambourines appearing out of thin air. <laughs> well, I must be off, he said. Good night and a Apologies once again for all that has happened this evening. He shook hands with the first sister, then turned to her blind twin. I hope, he said, that you are not too tired. The sightless eyes were disconcerting. She held his hand fast and would not let it go. The child she said, speaking in an odd staccato voice. The child, I can see the child. And then to his dismay, a bead of froth appeared at the corner of her mouth, her head jerked back, and she half collapsed in her sister's arms. Oh, we must get her inside, 
said the sister hurriedly. It's all right. She's not ill. It's, it's the beginning of a trance state. Between them, they helped the twin, who had gone rigid, into the house and set her down on the nearest chair, the sister supporting her. A woman came running from some inner room. There was a strong smell of spaghetti from the back regions. Don't worry, said the sister. The signorina and I can manage. I, I think you'd better go. Sometimes she is sick after these turns. Oh, I'm most frightfully sorry, John began, but the sister had already turned her back, and with the signorina was bending over her twin, from whom peculiar choking sounds were proceeding. He was obviously in the way, and after a final gesture of courtesy, is there anything I can do? which received no reply, he turned on his heel and began walking across the square. He looked back once and saw they had closed the door. What a finale to the evening and all his fault. Oh, those poor old girls first dragged to the police headquarters and put through an interrogation, and then a psychic fit on top of it all. More likely, epilepsy. Not much of a life for the other sister, but, well, she seemed to take it in her stride. An additional hazard, though, if it happened in a restaurant or in the street, and not particularly welcome under his and Laura's roof, should the sisters ever find themselves beneath it, which he prayed would never happen. Meanwhile, where, where the devil was he? The square with the inevitable church at one end was quite deserted, and he could not remember which way they had come from police headquarters. There had seemed to be so many turnings. Now, wait a minute. The church itself had a familiar appearance. He drew nearer to it, looking for the name, which was sometimes on notices at the entrance, San Giovanni in Bragora. Now, that rang a bell. Oh, he and Laura had gone inside one morning to look at a painting of Sima da Conegliano. Mm -hmm. Surely... It was only a stone's throw from the Riva degli Schiavoni and the open wide waters of the San Marco Lagoon with all the bright lights of civilization and the strolling tourists. He remembered taking a small turning from the Schiavoni and had arrived at the church. Now, wasn't that the alleyway ahead? He plunged along it. But halfway down, he hesitated. It didn't seem right. Although it was familiar for some unknown reason. Then he realized that it was not the alley they had taken the morning they visited the church, but the one they had walked along the previous evening. Only he was approaching it from the opposite direction. Yes, that was it in which case it would be quicker to go on and cross the little bridge over the narrow canal, and he would find the arsenal on his left and the street leading down to the Riva degli Schiavoni, to his right. Mm -hmm. 
It's simpler than retracing his steps and getting lost once more in the maze of back streets. He had almost reached the end of the alley and the bridge was in sight when he saw the child. Why, it was the same little girl with the pixie hood who had leapt between the tethered boats the preceding night and vanished up the cellar steps of one of the houses. Well, this time she was running from the direction of the church on the other side, making for the bridge. And she was running as if her life depended on it. And in a moment, he saw why. A man was in pursuit who, when she glanced backwards for a moment, still running, flattened himself against a wall, believing himself unobserved. The child came on, scampering across the bridge, and John, fearful of alarming her further, backed into an open doorway that led to a small court. He remembered the drunken yell of the night before, which had come from one of the houses near where the man was hiding now. This is it, he thought. That fellow's after her again. And with a flash of intuition, he connected the two events, the child's terror then and now, and the murders reported in the newspapers, supposedly the work of some madman. It could be coincidence, a child running from a drunken relative, and yet, and yet, his heart began thumping in his chest, instinct warning him to run himself now at once back along the alley the way he had come. But what about this child? What was going to happen to the child? Then he heard her running steps. She hurtled through the open doorway into the court in which he stood, not seeing him, making for the rear of the house that flanked it, where steps led presumably to a back entrance. She was sobbing as she ran, not the ordinary cry of a frightened child, but the panic-stricken intake of breath of a helpless being in despair. Were there parents in the house who would protect her, whom he could warn? He hesitated a moment and then followed her. Down the steps and through the door at the bottom, which had burst open at the touch of her hands, as she hurled herself against it. It's all right, he called. I won't let him hurt you. It's all right. Oh, cursing his lack of Italian, but possibly an English voice might reassure her. But it was no use. She ran, sobbing up another flight of stairs, which were spiral, twisting, leading to the floor above. And already it was too late for him to retreat. He could hear sounds of the pursuer in the courtyard behind. Someone shouting in Italian. A dog barking. This is it, he thought. We're, we're in it together, the child and I, unless we can bolt some inner door above. 
or he'll get us both. He ran up the stairs after the child, who had darted into a room leading off a small landing, and followed her inside, and slammed the door, and, oh, merciful heaven, there was a bolt, which he rammed into its socket. The child was crouching by the open window. Now, if he shouted for help, someone would surely hear, someone would surely come, before the man in pursuit threw himself against the door, and it gave, because there was no one but themselves, no parents. The room was bare, except for a mattress on an old bed and a heap of rags in one corner. It's, it's all right, he panted. It's all right. And he held out his hand, trying to smile. The child, while she struggled to her feet and stood before him, the pixie hood falling from her head onto the floor. He, he stared at her, incredulity turning to horror, to fear. It was not a child at all, but a, a little thick-set woman, dwarf, about three feet high with a great square adult head, really too big for her body, gray locks hanging shoulder length. And she wasn't sobbing anymore. Why, she was grinning at him, nodding her head up and down. And then he heard the footsteps on the landing outside and the hammering on the door and a barking dog and not one voice, but several voices shouting, Open up! Police! The creature fumbled in her sleeve, drawing a knife. And as she threw it at him with hideous strength, piercing his throat, he stumbled and fell. The sticky mess covering his protecting hands. And he saw the Vaporetto with Laura and the two sisters steaming down the Grand Canal. Not today. Not tomorrow. But the day after that. And he knew why they were together. And for what sad purpose they had come. The creature was gibbering in its corner. The hammering and the voices and the barking dog grew fainter. And, oh God, he thought. Bloody silly way to die.
night. 